Last Sunday, we focused on the divine purpose behind Lazarus's illness and death, which was or is the glory of God. We saw that in verse 4 of chapter 11. This morning, we're going to focus on the proclamation, the second P in this little series, where Jesus reveals to one of Lazarus's siblings an important truth about himself and the resurrection of the dead. Please take your Bibles and turn right over to John 11. We're going to be looking at 17 through 37 this morning. John 11, 17 through 37, pretty, pretty big chunk, especially for me when I take a long time on one verse. Uh, so this was a challenge to get through all of this, but it made the most sense to handle this much at this time. By way of context, Jesus has been preaching the gospel or had been preaching the gospel along the Jordan River where John the Baptist used to do ministry. Of course, John the Baptist was martyred by Herod Antiochus. He was beheaded. And, and so Jesus is ministering in the spot where John the Baptist used to do ministry. And while there, he received an urgent letter from two sisters, Martha and Mary, asking that he come to Bethany at once to minister to or heal their brother Lazarus, who was sick and dying. Jesus delayed two days and thus allowed Lazarus to succumb to his illness and then be buried. Why? Why would Jesus wait and not go rescue his friend so that he could go to Bethany after Lazarus died and raise him from the dead to prove his messiahship, that he is the messiah, to build up the faith of his disciples, to evangelize rebel Jews and most importantly, to bring glory to God. Now the disciples, after learning of Jesus' plan, he had told them what he was planning to do, they were totally hesitant to go with him because of his enemies. His enemies were stationed near Bethany in Jerusalem, that's all in the same province of Judea, and Jesus had just left that place and they tried to kill him. And so the disciples were very hesitant. They tried to dissuade Jesus from actually going back to where he had almost been killed, but Thomas, of all people, the doubting Thomas disciple, the doubting Thomas guy that we've all heard of, he actually was filled with courage for a brief second there and said, guys, let's just go with Jesus, and if we die with him, we die with him, which was quite extraordinary. You can look at that in verse 16 of chapter 11. And so he encouraged the disciples, and they uh, got ready to go. And... Now we pick it up at John 11, verse 17. Verse 17, it says, Now when Jesus came, so talking about him going to Bethany, when he arrived near Bethany, it says, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. So, obviously, very self-explanatory verse. Jesus arrives on the outskirts of Bethany, his friend Lazarus had already been dead and buried for four days. Now, notice the expression in verse 17, he found. We see it right in the middle, smack dab in the middle of verse 17, he found. It makes it sound like Jesus didn't know that Lazarus had been buried for four days until he arrived at Bethany. It, it makes it sound like Jesus made a discovery. 
Like he wasn't certain as to what was playing out. And when he arrived, he found that his friend had already been buried for four days. That's what I pulled from it immediately. I thought, wow, the phrasing here is kind of bizarre. And I'm not sure why translators of the King James, New King James, NASB, NIV, and ESV used this phrasing. It is confusing. And I don't think it's, uh, you know, you're talking about the Word of God here in an English translation. You don't want to talk about it being inaccurate because it's not inaccurate. But I think sometimes the English verbs and translations and nouns and expressions that we use just fall short of what actually is playing out in the Greek. And the truth is, is that Jesus knew exactly when Lazarus died. You can look back at verse 11 and verse 14. You know, he, he knew exactly when Lazarus died, and he knew when he and his disciples would arrive near Bethany four days after Lazarus was buried in a tomb. That's what we pull from verse 17. So, so Jesus was completely aware of the death. He didn't find out anything. He knew. He knew. But like I said, it's an English translational problem there. And it's surprising to me. And the NLT is not typically a translation I go to because it seems more like a paraphrase. But it's still good for basic reading. But we actually find a better rendering of 17 in the NLT. It says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told. He was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. So what you actually see playing out is Jesus knows what's going on. But when he arrives, people come up and tell him, hey, your friend died and he's been in the tomb for four days. So it's not a new discovery for Jesus. It's just what people were talking about. We must remember that Jesus is God and God is omniscient, which means he knows all things. And Jesus did have this, this power. And so he, he was familiar with all of it. He knew all of it. But people were just coming up saying, hey, your buddy died and he's been buried for four days. Now, look again at the phrase four days it's a detail. It's, a, it's an important detail. John included this detail to not only establish the time of death and raising of Lazarus, right? He died and he was buried for four days, then he's raised. So he did it not just to establish the chronology or timeline, but to combat superstition. So often we read scripture and, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's inspired and given by the Holy Spirit to it, an earthly uh, writer or recorder, and there's a context for which it was spoken by God to this guy to address certain things that were going around in that context. And in this context, there was a lot of superstition. The Jews in Jesus' day were highly superstitious about many, many things. And they believed that, that the soul of a person hovered over the body after the person died for three days. So when a person died, succumbed to their illness, they believed the soul kind of hung out and flew above the corpse. And, and the idea is that the soul is hoping to re-enter and re-energize the physical body. And it could possibly happen. So you had to treat people who died very carefully because they could come back to life within three days if the soul went back into them. This is what the Jews then believed. It's insane. And the sign that the soul had actually departed, yeah, it was about three days, but the sign that the soul was gone was the smell of decomposition. As soon as that body started to get ripe, you knew the soul was gone 
and death was irreversible. Okay, I can smell it coming out of this. Around, there's a, there must be a little gap in the seal on the tomb because I can smell it. That means that Fred is not coming back. This is the way they thought. I don't think they had people named Fred, but whatever. Jehoshaphat is not coming back. I don't even know what that means. But this is their thinking. They thought that, well, there's a possibility that Lazarus could come back. And John says Jesus arrived when? Four days. That's one day after the superstition, right? The timeline on the superstition, which I find to be so interesting. Now, Jesus may have actually waited four days, right? A whole day after that time period. He may have waited four days after the time period, or one day after the time period expired to raise Lazarus just to show that he is not bound by superstition. That he doesn't have to operate within people's ideologies and thoughts and superstitions and religion and, and ways of thinking. Obviously, he came to raise Lazarus, not just to combat superstition, I think, but to show that he is the one that raises the dead, not hovering souls. Not hovering souls. Now, liberal critics, and when I say liberal, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump. I'm talking about a, a mentality and ideology, and typically in liberal thinking, there's a denial of all things supernatural. And liberal critics, both ancient, way old, and modern, even today, and postmodern, if you want to call it that, they have argued and argued and argued that Lazarus was not actually dead and that Jesus did not actually bring him back to life. They say he was swoon. What the heck does that mean? It means faint. They say that he was in a, a deep sleep, like a, a coma or something of that nature, and that Jesus simply arrived at the, at the perfect time and woke him up. Kind of like sleeping beauty or something here, except Lazarus stinketh. <laughs> so they totally reject and deny the death of Lazarus and the literal raising of Lazarus. Now, of course, they do the same thing with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They say Jesus was swoon, like he passed out on the cross, and he, he appeared to be so, he appeared to be dead, and they buried him, and then he came back to life. Now, let's just examine the evidence from John 11. First, Jesus testified to Lazarus' death. Verse 11 and verse 14. Verse 11, he says he's fallen asleep. Fallen asleep in the New Testament means died. And then in verse 14, he says Lazarus has died. So Jesus' own testimony, his own words about Lazarus are that he was dead. Now, I don't know how you get around that, but somehow these liberal scholars managed to, you know, do some gymnastics with it. Secondly, Lazarus was in the tomb for four days, verse 17. You don't put people who are still alive in a tomb, certainly not for four days. Are, are we uh, so naive to think that these people nearly 2,000 years ago couldn't tell when a person was dead? Well, he could be alive. No, he's dead. His chest isn't moving. You know, they probably did the old breath test on him. He's not breathing. 
He was in a tomb for four days. The only time a person was placed in a tomb is when they were dead. Third, Jewish mourners had come to support Martha and Mary, verse 19. You don't go to a funeral to mourn someone who's alive. Maybe we'll start doing that in this nation at some point, which will be interesting, because we're doing a lot of other crazy things. But if you notice from the text, there's a lot of people that made the two-mile trek from Jerusalem to Bethany to go sob with this family and to hang out. And funerals back then went on for a week, and the mourning process was an entire month. So you would have Jewish people and other people coming into the house all month long and paying homage to their fallen brother and trying to love them and trying to encourage them. You just didn't do that with people who were alive. Five, some Jews criticized Jesus. They said, if he can open the eyes of a blind man, he could have kept Lazarus from dying. That's in verse 37. Their own words, from dying. Six, Martha warned that the smell of death, decomposition, would come out of the tomb if the tomb were opened. Verse 39. How do you have the smell of decomposition when the person is still alive? You could have B.O., but if you've ever smelled B.O., pretty bad. I was in junior high ministry. None of those kids knew how to put on deodorant. There's a big difference between some body odor and some, some death stank. Huge difference. Decomposition is a smell you never forget. It gets burned into your nose. And she's telling Jesus, you know, man, if you, get, if you open up the tomb and bring him out of here or do whatever you're going to do, if you, open, if you crack the seal on that, it's going to be stinky. Well, we just, we don't say things like that about people who are still alive. I guess we do. That guy smelled like death, but I, I've said that before in line at Disneyland. And they have those tunnels down there. The Indiana Jones, there's no fresh air. And there's like a thousand people in front of you. Seven, Jesus himself, the, or John himself, pardon me, John himself, the divinely inspired, Holy Spirit-led author of this gospel. The guy who penned this gospel through the Holy Spirit, he testified to Lazarus' death. John was actually there. In verse 44, he says, the man who was dead came out. The, the evidence is overwhelming. In this chapter alone, there's just, there's just no way around it. The biblical evidence is clear. Lazarus physically died, was buried, and was physically raised by Jesus. And, and just no amount of intellectual spin can change what took place. The truth is... People are unwilling to accept the Bible's testimony about supernatural and historical events such as the death and raising of Lazarus as well as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They just won't accept those realities like ancient Sadducees. That was a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day. They just deny anything and everything that goes beyond, that transcends human reasoning, and or earthly science. If I can't get my mind around it, then it's not true. That's the prevailing ideology of people today. If I can't figure out how that equation works, then it must not be true. Well, obviously, you've never taken calculus. Calculus is true and impossible. So, but this is the way people rationalize stuff. And really, it's just, 
they don't want to be held morally accountable. If there's a God who created me, then I'm morally accountable to him. And that means I can't live my life the way that I want to live my life and do the things that I want to do. This is the real deeper issue here. But what they fail to understand is that the life that God gives is the truest life possible on this side of glory. It's such a trick of the devil, isn't it? Oh, I don't want to give my life over to him because then it'll be terrible. My life was terrible until God saved me. That's the attitude of the true believer, right? You realize shortly after being saved, wow, I really was a mess. I still am, but by grace, I'm becoming somebody else. Anyhow, why are people unwilling to accept the Bible's testimony about such, such things? Moral accountability? Absolutely. But John 3.19 tells us precisely why. They love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds, their works are evil. That's the bottom line. Now look at 18 and 19. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now John tells us that many of the Jews left Jerusalem and, and went the two-mile distance, which wasn't terribly far. Of course, it's a desert region, so it was hot, but they, they made the distance, and they went to Bethany to console Martha and Mary on the death of Lazarus. Now, Jews here, the word Jews, titled Jews, does not refer to the religious leaders here. It's a generic term that describes the Jewish people in general. So often in John's Gospel, when you see the word Jews capitalized, it's a reference to the religious leaders, but here that's not the case. Don't get the idea that we have a bunch of religious leaders who went to mourn the loss of Lazarus of a bunch of people who loved Jesus. The religious leaders would have never, ever, ever done that. This family was very well known in their community, and they were known as followers and disciples of Jesus. There's no way religious leaders would have paid the homage. They would not have condescended to visit and console this family. There's no way. It's just not going to happen. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were just super, super well-known, a prominent family, and they did not hide their faith. They did not hide it, which was very bold in those days. You were put out of the synagogue if you were caught talking about Jesus, and uh, they may have been expelled from a synagogue. Who knows? Uh, they were known for following Jesus. Uh, in fact, after this miracle, they even threw a big party for Jesus in their home, and the celebration attracted a massive crowd. Uh, back in my glory days of partying and running around like a maniac, we would have called this a rager. Remember that? course, this was a rager without all the debauchery and drunkenness. Uh, but this was a very, very big party. And the party goers, people came all, from all over, especially Jerusalem, they'd all come there to see Jesus, and they had come to see Lazarus, whom they knew had died, and they came to hear his testimony. They were probably asking him, what happened after you died? Where did you go? Well, what would he have said? I was in paradise. In fact, I was a little upset when Jesus woke me up. You know, I, what would he have said? He's the one that could have written a book about going to heaven and then coming back, and it would have been real instead of these frauds that we have today. But they went to hear his testimony and, and to listen to him and to see him and to touch his arm and say, man, it really is you. This is extraordinary. They went to hear Jesus preach the gospel. Now, during this big party, apparently the Holy Spirit 
dropped on this party like a spiritual bomb and Jews were being converted left and right. A, a mini revival broke out at a party. I have never seen that happen at any of the parties I've been to. The opposite of revivals happen. It's devival that happens at the parties I went to. And, and so the Holy Spirit is here and he's attending the ministry, uh, the preaching of Jesus and the testimony of of uh, Lazarus, and, and people are getting saved. There's a revival that kind of breaks out, and it you know, trickles over into the next couple of days and all that, and of course, this catches the attention of the religious leaders. And from that moment on, they began to look for a way to also eliminate the faithful witness of Jesus, Lazarus. Now, all of a sudden, Lazarus has a contract on his life, not just Jesus. But we've got to stop the guy who he raised and who's going around telling everyone about it. Because all of these people that are part of our church are leaving our church to go be a part of Jesus' church. We can't have that. That's the thinking. John 12, 1 through 11, that's where it talks about them wanting to kill Lazarus. And it talks about the party. So the Jews in our text who came to Bethany to console Martha and Mary concerning their brother were regular Jewish people who knew the family, and there were many of them, as it says. So this shows that the family was well-known, prominent, respected, loved. Lots of people came to this long funeral process. Look at 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. The news of Jesus' arrival traveled quickly, and when Martha heard it, she immediately dropped what she was doing and went to meet Jesus. Her sister Mary, on the other hand, remains seated in the house. And what we see through this little detail that John includes about Mary being seated, what we see is a missed opportunity. Martha usually gets a bad rap for being really active and stirring and demonstrative. You know, she's just so busy with things. She doesn't have time to consider spiritual matters and all of that, right? This is kind of what we've drawn from Scripture. I mean, you know, there was a, a, an encounter where, you know, Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him, and Martha's busy in the kitchen trying to get everything ready for dinner, and she gets all blown out because Mary's in there, you know, doing a devotional when she's got to get the, you know, jasmine rice and shish kebabs and everything together, and she gets all blown out. So Mary, Martha gets a bad rap because she's just so busy, and she's not a spiritual person, you know. And, but here her busy style totally pays off. She's up and about, staying busy. A messenger comes in. She's one of the first people to get the message. And what does she do? Jams out the door to go see Jesus. It's because she was up and busy that she was positioned to receive the message and then take action. Uh, it's just extraordinary, the details. And again, Mary, on the other hand, what? She's totally praised for being quiet, gentle, meditative, meek, contemplative. But here, guess what? Her melancholy style cost her big time, man. Instead of being up and about and positioned to hear the exciting news like her sister, she's sitting on the couch thinking about her brother's death, and she totally misses this opportunity. Totally. J.C. Ryle wrote, There is a time to stir as well as to sit still. And here, by not stirring, 
Mary certainly missed hearing our Lord's glorious declaration about himself, like he's in the community. Both these holy women were true disciples, no doubt. Yet if Mary showed more grace on a former occasion than Martha, I think Martha here showed more than Mary. That should balance us out when we're thinking about Martha and Mary, because we tend to give all the credit to Mary and none to Martha. And I'll tell you, there's a truth here for us. It is possible for us to become so grief-stricken in these, t- in these times, in these times of difficulty and loss, we can become so grief-stricken during these times that it, it, it gets us to the point where we actually miss opportunities to see Jesus, to experience Jesus' blessings, right? You can totally be so down on yourself or down over a situation that, you know, you're, you're kind of closed off and you become despondent and you miss what Christ might be trying to do in that moment, how he might be trying to reveal himself to you. But you're so down in the dumps that you're not responsive or you're not alert. You're not watching. And some people, quite frankly, miss his ultimate blessing, salvation, the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Why? Because of grief. They lose a family member or go through some other terrible, terrible tragedy and end up blaming God and even hating God. I've met people that have done this. They hate God because they lost a child. They hate God because some other situation or scenario played out. And they close their ears and they close their hearts to the very thing that can heal, that can heal their spiritual and emotional wounds, the gospel. It's another trick of the devil to rack us with so much grief and despair that we close ourselves off. We just wallow in our own sadness and depression. It happens. It happens all the time. Now, I don't think Mary went that far with it here, but she missed an opportunity. Busyness during difficult times can be good as long as we are not keeping busy in order to stuff away our feelings or escape reality. And so often in this culture, and even in the church, that's why people stay busy. They don't want to think deeply about things that have happened. They don't want to process. They don't want to grieve properly. There is proper godly grieving. There is. But busyness can be good during this time too. And and so can sitting still, right? Provided that we do not remain seated and miss opportunities to see Jesus. I would just simply encourage you and say that balance is the key. I like to keep busy and contemplate the situation, whether it be the loss of a loved one or whoever. But I also like to cry when I do it. I like to think through it as I'm busy. It's just, my style is just simple. It's just busyness with tears. I'm not trying to stay busy so I can hide from the emotions and grieving process, but I like to keep busy. It kind of takes the edge off. But there'll be moments where I pause and I weep or I'm sad. But that's not a bad style. But if you do either one, maybe you're trying to run from the stuff or if you just sit there and bury yourself in grief, that's not healthy. You could miss something. Well, busyness with tears works for me. Maybe it can work for you. Maybe, maybe that's your style. And anyone here... You have a type of way of dealing with the situation. Busyness with tears, it works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Look at 21 through 24. Martha said to Jesus, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. (laughs) But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. (laughs) What a declaration, right? Martha said to him, oh, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. When, when Martha found Jesus, she questioned him. It's the first thing she does. Notice how she doesn't begin by saying, Hi, Lord. How was your trip to the other side of the Jordan? How have you been? She just runs up and questions him and questions what he's been doing. She basically says to him, Lord, why didn't you come sooner? You could have saved my brother. This is what she said to him. Have you ever been through a difficult situation where you felt like God was either late or didn't show up at all? That's precisely what Martha was feeling here. She even questioned God. Well, if he had just done this, things would have been different. Now, here's some observations from Martha's interaction with Jesus in this text. First, and it's a totally positive one, but lacking, Martha had faith. I mean, this is a good thing, right? Faith is a gift. She had faith. She knew that the Lord could have healed Lazarus, right? She says, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So she had faith. She believed that Jesus had the power to heal and preserve Lazarus. But she also believed that the Lord had to be present to do it. If you had been here, do you see the error? Do you see the immaturity of her faith there? Jesus did not have to be present to heal. And this was a known fact at this moment in the narrative, in the story, as it's playing out. What did we see in John 4? The healing of an official's son. That young man was in another town, lying in a bed, dying, and Jesus told the official, go, your son will live. And at that precise moment, his son began to recover. Right there. This had happened before this other event with Lazarus. People knew that Jesus could heal when he was present with the person who needed healing, and they knew that he could heal from a distance. They knew that his power wasn't restricted by his presence. And Martha may have known this, maybe not. I think she did, but I think she forgot. But the point is she knew, she had the faith to believe that he could heal, but she thought that he had to be there, and that is not true at all. Jesus can heal from anywhere, and he could do it even then. Second, Martha displayed strong confidence in the efficacy of Jesus's prayers, right? She said, I know that anything you ask from God, he will give to you. She knew that he was great at praying. She knew that his prayers were potent and powerful, and she knew that the Father answered his prayers. She understood this. This is also good. But at the same time, she speaks to the Lord as if he were only a human prophet with no independent power of his own. It's almost as if she said, if you ask your dad, I know he'll do it. Instead of saying, you could do it. And that's a problem. That is a total problem. She failed to recognize in this moment, again, it's not because she was an unbeliever, it's because she was an immature believer, but she failed to recognize Jesus' deity and divine power. She failed to recognize his own sovereignty. Now, it is true that Jesus prayed regularly, but make no mistake, he did not have to ask the Father for permission or power to heal people. He did not have to do that. He did not have to do that. 
Jesus prayed because he enjoyed communing with the Father. More than anything, he loved to spend time with his Father. And secondly, to set an example for us. But this idea of him not being able to do anything, any kind of supernatural event or healing or anything apart from the Father is ridiculous. In fact, if you look at when he fed the multitude, he didn't even ask God for the power or ability to do it. He just thanked the Father, then he performed the miracle. So Jesus also prayed to give thanks. And that's why we should pray as well, not just to petition him for things, but to give thanks. But Jesus is God. Jesus could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, at any time. And she does not speak to him like this. It's as if he's tethered to the Father and can't do anything. So, hey, if you want to go ahead and ask your daddy to do it, that'd be really cool. Well, Jesus doesn't have to have his daddy to be able to do it because Jesus is God. That was another mistake of hers. Third, Martha presumed to have a better plan than Jesus. She was presumptive. She said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Her version of how things played out in her mind was better and stronger than what Jesus was doing. Because Lazarus died as a result of what Jesus wasn't doing, right? So her plan, in her mind, was better. Now, I think that she was obviously blinded by grief. But in any case, she had no idea that Jesus had a divine plan that involved raising Lazarus from the dead, building his disciples' faith, you know, converting many rebel Jews of his, uh, converting them to salvation, convincing them of his Messiahship. She had no idea. She had her plan. It had been better if you'd come, but she didn't know that Jesus had a plan. She wasn't thinking that Jesus had a plan and that his very presence showed that he had a plan. What was Martha's problem? Her problem was she was focused entirely on Lazarus, getting him back and alleviating her and her sister's emotional pain. And this impacted her understanding of Jesus' sovereignty over the situation, over all things. Do we not do the exact same thing in times of trouble? We presume to know better than the Lord, right? We even say that similar things. Well, Gee, Jesus, if you'd have done this, then this would have happened or that would have happened. We do the same thing. We do the same thing as her. We presume to know better than God all of the time. We think we know better than Him. Especially when it comes to certain doctrines like the doctrine of election. Well, I like my version better than, than His Calvin version. Well, there's a biblical version that prevails overall, just so you know. But here's the deal, man. It's just, in these times, it, it's like we become somebody else. And we forget that God has a plan, that He's sovereign. And then we, we really want to bend God into conformity with our plan. Or we get upset when things don't go the way that we believe they should go. And that's exactly what she's doing here. And then what happens later on when we can see his plan more fully or how he threaded all these things together and worked it all out and it ended up producing a way, way, way better result than anything we could imagine. What do we do? We always say, or at least I say, how stupid of me. How stupid of me to presume upon the Lord and to think that my plan was better than his plan. Thank God you don't obey my plans, God, because this is way better. This is how we respond in these situations. You know, 
Martha was moments away from seeing the very thing that she wanted to come true, come true. But she didn't believe it in this moment because of the grief. She couldn't see beyond her emotional situation. This is why God commands that we master our emotions. Don't let your emotions master you. So many people today, in fact, our whole country is mastered by its emotions. Everyone is operating in accordance with feeling today, not truth. And it's very dangerous. And this country is going to get decimated because of it. There is truth. There is a sovereign God in charge of all these things, and he's working it all out. And guess what? The direction of this country falls under his sovereignty. So praise him for it, even though it's very hard. Lastly, Martha totally misunderstands Jesus' incredible declaration, your brother will rise again. He says this to her right there in that context. He is not referring to the resurrection of all on the last day. He's talking about in about 10 minutes, he's about to walk out of the tomb. But she has no clue. She's thinking in Jewish mindsets, in Jewish categories, she's thinking we're talking about the resurrection that all of us Jewish people believe that will happen on the last day. That's what she's thinking. She totally, totally misses what he's saying. It is true that Lazarus and many others will be resurrected on the last day, but that's not what Jesus was referring to here. He was actually not only referring to the fact that he was about to raise Lazarus, but he was referring mostly to his role and involvement in the resurrection. That's what he's pointing to. And he clarifies in 25 and 26. This is where he tries to help Martha get her mind around what he means. Look at 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, right? He says, he, he's going to be raised. He's going to rise up. And then he says this. Uh, uh, hold on, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he hangs this awesome question on the end. Do you believe this? In verse 25a, we see the proclamation, right? Jesus proclaims to Martha very plainly that he is the resurrection and the life. He's actually trying to steer her attention and emotions and focus off of Lazarus onto him. And that's where we should be focused in these times. Not on the circumstances, but on the Lord. And he's saying, don't focus on him and on the last day. Focus on what I'm telling you. And he, he proclaims that he is the resurrection and the life. What does this mean? First, it means that there is no resurrection outside of Jesus Himself. He is the resurrection. All people will be raised by Jesus, some to eternal life, some to eternal death. Jesus' own resurrection, when He was raised, that guarantees that He will one day raise and judge the world with justice. Acts 17.31, John 5.22. Second, it means that there is no eternal life outside of Jesus himself, right? He called himself the resurrection, which means I am the resurrection. I am the only resurrection. And then he calls himself life, right? I am the resurrection and the life, meaning I'm the only eternal life. There's no eternal life. There's no salvation outside of me. So we must understand. It's vastly different from what people in our nation believe. Jesus is not one option, for eternal life, right? Today you have this thinking that all religions and all roads lead to heaven. No, they don't. They all lead to hell. 
They're all broad road, broad road map quests. That's all they are. There's one option. That's it. There's not many options. There's not many roads. Jesus is not one way uh, to eternal life. Jesus is not one path to eternal life among many paths, right? He is the narrow gate. He is the narrow path. Jesus is eternal life. It's all in Him, and this is what we must believe. We cannot share that with anyone else or with anything else, including our own works. He's it. He's the only option. He's the only way. He's the only path. And when we receive and believe in Him by grace through faith, we get eternal life. We are on the narrow path. In verses 25b through 26, Jesus tells Martha that although believers will one day die physically, they will not remain dead. And once they are, and he's speaking of the resurrection, his resurrection when he raises up his people, and once they are raised up by him, once they are resurrected by him, they shall never experience physical death again. So we will die physically one day unless the Lord comes before that. We will be put in a tomb. Our soul, our spirit goes to be with him in paradise. But when he returns, there will be a resurrection and our bodies will be raised. And from that point on, they will never, ever, ever experience physical death again. Ever, ever. It's over. And this is precisely what he tells her. At the end of verse 26, Jesus asks Martha, Do you believe this? Do you believe what I am telling you? Do you believe what I have said? And this searching question is the application to Martha of the great doctrines Jesus just laid down, right? He's the resurrection and the truth. And if you believe in him, though you die, you'll be raised and you'll never die again. He's asking, do you believe the doctrines I've just laid down? It was as if Jesus had said, you believe that the dead will rise. Fine. Right? She acknowledged that. Yeah, they'll rise on the last day. Fine. But do you believe that I am the author of resurrection and the source of life? Do you realize that I, your teacher and friend, am God and have the keys of death and the grave in my hands? Do you understand what I have said to you? Do you understand who I am? If you only know me as a, as a prophet, and that's how she was treating him, right? Like, go ask the Father. You're just a human prophet. If your understanding of me, only, it, it only has to do with treating me as a prophet or a teacher, that falls short and you've only received half a truth. She must believe that he is the resurrection and the life. And she does. She does. It just has to be drawn out of her. Look at her answer in 27. She said to him, yes, it's an emphatic yes, right? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Now, Martha really shines here. I know I've been hard on her, but she really shines here. She makes a threefold confession. First, she confesses that Jesus is the Christ, right? I believe that you are the Christ, this shows that she understood and believed that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. Christ is the Greek translation of Messiah, which is the Hebrew version. Christ and Messiah, synonymous. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. He is the Messiah. And she's saying, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are Israel's Messiah. 
That's part of her confession. Secondly, she confesses that Jesus, and this is huge, she confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. This is something that Jesus was teaching from the very beginning that very few people believed of him. And this shows that she understood and believed that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. And I think I argued this a couple of weeks ago or last week. There are people out there who name the name of Christ who will argue against you and say that he is not God. They seem to think that son of God means he's just a son and not actually divine. But if we deny the deity of Jesus, we lose it all. That is a, a, a close-fisted doctrine that we cannot play with. And she understood this about him. She understood that he's Israel's Messiah, and she understood that he's divine, that he is God in flesh. And three, she confesses that Jesus is who is coming into the world. This also shows that she believes and understands that he's divine, that he had left heaven and come into the world. But it also proves that she understood and believed that Jesus is the promised Redeemer, the one whom the Old Testament prophets, the entire Old Testament, actually point to that Redeemer. And she believed you're the one that the Old Testament was talking about all the time and all the time, the one to come into the world. Her confession is brilliant. It's spot on. It's right on the money. He's the Christ. She understands he's the Christ. She understands that he's God. She understands that he is the Redeemer. Now look at 28 through 31, a little bit bigger chunk. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, it's funny after she is told all this stuff and then she calls him teacher right here. <laughs> uh, you just made a confession that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and here you call him teacher. At least it's capitalized, right? She says in private to Mary, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, all of a sudden, Martha gets off of that, that couch of mourning, right, and that sadness couch, and she springs right up. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her, talking about Martha, in her house consoling her, when they saw Martha rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. After making her confession, Jesus sends Martha home to retrieve her sister Mary. And when she arrived, man, she, she walks right up to Mary and pulls her aside. And she quietly tells her that the teacher is nearby. And I am a bit perplexed as to why she referred to Jesus as teacher. I think that it might have been because she didn't want to alert the Jews who were there of Jesus' presence. Because Jesus had many, many enemies in Jerusalem, and that's where these Jews had come from. So instead of saying Jesus is here, or the Christ is here, or the Son of God is here, which are all uh, words and titles that got Jesus in major trouble, she might have just said, the teacher's here, just to avoid any sort of trouble. But it totally backfired. Totally backfired because soon as all of these Jews who had come from Jerusalem to mourn with this family saw Mary go from, uh, uh, to, huh? get up and fly out the door. They're going, what's going on? Where did she just go? They assumed she went to the tomb to do some weeping over there, so they're running behind her, trying to catch up to her. It must have been cr a crazy sight. She's, they're, running, they're running behind her, following her. Now look at 32 and 30, or through 35. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Boy, these sisters were alike, right? I wonder if twins are so much alike like this. I think they are. We have two here, and sometimes I'm mistaken their identities. 
She totally says the exact same thing. Look at it. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like, did you girls rehearse this? Verbatim, right? And John, I, think, I don't think John was being lazy. He heard her say the exact same thing. He's like, that's interesting. Got that document in my diary. Can you take that out? No. And when Jesus saw her, she, she landed at his feet, and she says the exact same thing as Martha. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her, they were running behind, and they caught up. They were also pouring out tears and weeping and wailing. It says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then look at that, verse 35. Jesus wept. Now, Mary's response to Jesus was nearly identical to that of Martha, right? She said the exact same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost as if they rehearsed it. I don't think they did. And her understanding, and, and this statement that she made, her, it shows that her understanding and her faith was immature. It shows that her understanding of Jesus was deficient, just as her sister Martha's. Notice, however, the subtle differences in the text. Mary fell at Jesus' feet. We didn't see Martha do that, did we? Mary fell at his feet. What does that mean? That is to fall prostrate, to bow. That is, a, that is an expression of honor and worship to the individual and submission. So she runs up and the first thing she does is slides in at first base. She's down on her face, right at his feet. And that is a big, big difference between Martha she bowed before him. She falls prostrate. She submits out of respect and out of worship. Martha didn't do that. Poor Martha. She's just, it's getting bad for her. Jesus saw, and, and here's where it gets bad for Mary. Jesus saw Mary weeping. Now, we think that's a good thing, but juxtaposed to that, we didn't see Martha weeping, did we? She just runs up and starts talking to Jesus. And I would just quickly say, of the two sisters, Mary was... Simply, the more sensitive one. Martha was bold and active, right? And she was kind of like Simon Peter, you know. Mary was tender and contemplative, kind of like John, you know. And if you really think about it, the church is comprised of lots of different types of believers. You've got Martha's, you've got Mary's, and we need Martha's. You know who was a Martha? Cammie Rogers. She was the anti-Mary. But she was a serious Martha. She was. And, and in some ways, I'm a Martha. Mike Boyd is a Mary. He's not a sissy Mary. He's a Mary. <laughs> Pastor Cameron, he's a Simon Peter. <laughs> now, underline this phrase, because this is where it gets tricky. He's like, what does that mean? I'll tell you later, pal. Underline the phrase, he was deeply moved. Right there in verse 33. This is going to trip you out. It's totally misleading. This is another problem with, with the grammar. This is another problem with the English rendering. It really is. English translators have, have misinterpreted the original language here. They have. Not deliberately, but they've done it. Their phrasing causes us to think that Jesus was filled with sadness and compassion over the situation. Right? When, when we talk about somebody being moved, we don't talk about... We, we, we tend to talk about them being moved emotionally and moved in love, or in compassion, or in sadness, or in empathy, right? Isn't that what you draw from that when you first read it? He was moved when he saw the people weeping and crying, right? To me, that means that he also was saddened and, 
and he felt the same way as everyone else there. This is, this is not true. Now, I don't want to desensitize the situation. Jesus did weep. He was saddened by what was playing out, but that's not what he was moved or deeply moved means. It actually has to do with anger. What Jesus saw angered him. All of the weeping and the wailing, and some were crying out and probably throwing dust all over the place. It angered him. It didn't move him with like, oh, this is so sad, and then he starts copying everyone's behavior. It actually angered him. And the Greek verb here, when you rightly transfer it, uh, uh, translate it, not transfer, but when you rightly translate it, it doesn't seem to fit. The original language doesn't seem to fit with its own context. It actually means sternly warned or scalding. It has the connotation of anger. So Jesus is not filled with empathy and sadness because of what's playing out right at this very moment. He's filled with anger over what he's witnessing. And notice also there's another phrase that says greatly troubled. Now that gets closer to touching on what's actually playing here. Because we don't usually call people who are sad over a situation greatly troubled. We, we would say greatly saddened. And this greatly troubled phrase further emphasizes his true reaction. The incessant weeping and hopelessness of the mourners caused him great trouble. Great trouble here. MacArthur nails it down. He says, Jesus appears to have been angry not only over the painful reality of sin and death, of which Lazarus was a beloved example, but perhaps also with the mourners who were acting like pagans who have no hope. Think about that. And I started thinking about that. And here's, here's Jesus, God, the Messiah, the one... Our hope is fixed, and here he is standing among all these people, and many of them are his own disciples, and he's been teaching them. He's been with them for 33 years. He's been teaching them for three years, and he's been teaching them where their hope should be, teaching them the gospel, teaching them about him as the resurrection life, all of this stuff, pointing to himself, pointing to this Old Testament scripture which points to him, all of that, and then a beloved Christian dies, and all of the Christians act like pagans because they're crying and weeping and mourning and sackclothing and doing all this stuff because they lost their loved one as if they have no hope of a resurrection or anything else. I, I think this would be offensive to the Lord. And I think that when we respond in these situations, it's offensive to Him. Have you ever read 1 Thessalonians 4.13? Have you ever read that text where, where the Apostle Paul literally, literally corrects the church because of their funeral behavior? that they were exploding and, and, and acting hopeless and despairing over the loss of other believers in such a way that it made them look like they were pagans, unbelievers who have no hope. Listen to what he said. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those Christians who have passed away, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Christian funerals are to be vastly different from non-Christian funerals. They are, and, and, and I've been to so many of them. Sometimes they're not. Our hope and peace are in the person and work of Jesus. We are to take joy in knowing that our believing family members and friends who have 
fallen asleep, are now in the glorious presence of Jesus Christ in paradise and will one day be raised from the dead, resurrected, incorruptible. We are to celebrate this reality at the funeral. Funerals for Christians ought to be big parties where we hoop and holler. Where we are so stoked about where our loved one is. Because they are in a far better place than we are. We are to celebrate this reality with tears. Sure, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Why did Jesus weep? Because in His humanity, He witnessed the devastating effects of sin on humanity. The loss of His close friend. That's why He wept. It's okay to weep when we lose someone we love. I'm not saying don't do that. Don't be a weird sociopath. Jesus wept. But we need to keep it godly. Godly weeping weeping is grounded in gospel hope. There will be more tears of joy than tears of sorrow. Jesus then commands, where have you laid his body? It's almost as if Jesus wants to put an end to this spectacle. I I need to get over there and raise him so you Christians will stop acting like non-Christians. It's not at all his MO, but it seems like it. He just interrupts the thing and says, where did you lay his body? Martha and Mary replied, Lord, come and see. And while walking to Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. It's okay to weep. But do godly weeping, godly mourning. And the Greek verb here, wept, it literally means to silently burst into tears. Jesus did not make a spectacle of himself like the others who were there. What is godly weeping? Godly weeping is controlled weeping. Where you you manage and control your emotions and you weep in such a way as to not displease the Lord because you're acting like you have no hope. But in a way that is reverent and sober and genuine. And look at how many of the Jewish mourners that were there responded to Jesus in our last verses, 36 and 37. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? Exclamation point. But some of the others said, Could he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Well, some of those Jews that were there, those mourners who'd come from Jerusalem that were trying to support the family, some interpreted Jesus' tears as an expression of genuine affection and love for Lazarus. And I think they were. But others interpreted his two-day delay and the subsequent death of Lazarus as the opposite. They, uh, They basically said, if he can open the eyes of a blind man, and that happened back in chapter 9, surely he could have kept Lazarus from dying. (laughs) What a thing to say. Who do they sound like? And this is where it's so striking. Who do these people sound like in that very moment when they made that comment? They sound like Martha and Mary. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Closing. 
Martha and Mary were no doubt genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, but in this very moment they set a poor example for the people around them when they acted like those without hope and when they presumptively questioned the Lord. Boy, if you'd just been here, things would have been different, wouldn't they have? And this display of immaturity led others to question the situation and even criticized Jesus for healing one man but letting another man die, his own personal friend. How absolutely terrible. How terrible for them to say such a thing, but more so how terrible for them to be led to say such a terrible thing because of two Christians. <laughs> and I think our application is the same as Martha's. I really do. It is for me at least. Jesus asked, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life and that whoever believes in me though he die yet he shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die? Martha's answer was on point but her actions fell short. If we believe these truths about Jesus this should cause us to respond differently than both Martha and Mary during times of great emotional pain and stress, during times of loss. Just to tell you a very short story, I remember years ago when an elderly gentleman lost his son to a devastating illness. This is one thing that, that I can't imagine, and that's losing your child or one of your children. I've always hoped that, that I would be gone long before any of my children go to be with the Lord, although I know, well, I at least hope I know where they're going. You guys better believe in Jesus, dudes. <sighs> Seriously, do it for your dad. <laughs> I can't imagine what that must be like. And, and this was a, a very challenging situation to be in this hospital room and to watch this play out. And, and, and this, this elderly gentleman was in there, and, and I was standing there when his son passed away. And you could hear the breathing machine in and out and in and out. And he was on a respirator, so it was just doing the breathing for him. But you could hear the monitor and the doo. He was gone. And I'll, I'll, it was so sad, but I'll never forget how that father responded. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this man is a, a believer and has been a believer longer than I've been alive, this elderly gentleman. And his son, who passed away, praise God, was a believer. But this is what that elderly gentleman shouted. Satan has won! Satan has won! Satan has won! Now, I can't imagine what that poor elderly man was feeling in that moment. I can't put myself in his shoes. An outburst is understandable when, when you are struck with, with such devastating grief, it just overcomes you. And we do tend to do and say things that, that would unbecoming of us and not glorify God. But, but there were others in the room who were completely confused by his strange outburst. What, 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 what's he... What's he mean? I thought they were believers. How did Satan, I, his, isn't his son in paradise now? And 
it just caused all sorts of weird confusion. People are watching us. Be mindful of what you say and do in times like this. Be mindful of who you are in Christ and where your hope is. Exercise godly weeping. For our hope is not in flesh and blood. For our hope is not in the things of this world, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. If we believe that, we should live differently and respond in these situations differently. Godly weeping is the key. Next section, we will see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and visibly substantiate his bold claim as the resurrection and the life and bring glory to God.